Chapter Eight of Quintus Oakes, A Detective Story. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Quintus Oakes, A Detective Story by Charles Ross Jackson. Chapter Eight The Mansion. Mona was situated on a plateau terminating rather abruptly at the river on the west and elevated well above its waters. In the neighborhood of the station it was high and a long climb. A mile farther down the stream, where the mansion sat on the edge of the cliff, the elevation was not so great, perhaps a hundred feet or more above the railroad tracks by the river. The mansion end of the plateau was lower, therefore, than the town. Beyond the river the land lay at the same elevation as Mona. The beautiful place itself was some distance back from the crest of the plateau, and was approached from the river by the highway we had known so well that day. This was intersected at right angles on the plain above by River Road, which ran parallel to the waters below. The junction of these two roads was known as the Corners. Upon following River Road for nearly a mile toward the south, one would arrive at the mansion gate. The other road, the highway as it was called, led directly to Mona, in the center of the plateau, which gradually terminated to the north, south, and east in the rolling hills of that region. Never was town site better selected, never was place more hopeful until recently, when the blackness and gloom of the unoccupied mansion, with its tale of dread, seemed to have extended to men's minds and laid its grasp of uncanniness and uneasiness on business and pleasure and now to make the sloth of despond deeper had come the sharp quick act of a murder above all an unknown assassin and a crime similar to one scarce forgotten the mansion gate opened directly from river road and a walk of about two hundred yards brought the visitor to the front door the back of the mansion faced the river directly to the west the balcony of the back parlor and dining room half circled the south and west sides of the house and had evidently been much used. The woodwork was old, and the flooring quite worn. The front of the place was pillared in old colonial style, and was of stone, hewn in the rough, and built in a permanent fashion. Across River Road, right in front of the gate, came an uneven roll of the country, or break in the plateau. The ground billowed deeply for at least a quarter of a mile, parallel to the road, the slope from the road was gradual to a little pond of considerable depth at the bottom of the depression. On the farther side the ground rose more abruptly, but not so high as on the mansion side. The pond itself was about one hundred feet in width, and one standing by the mansion exit could see both the pond and the ascent beyond, and, over the crest of the billowy ground, the distant woods and the country to the east. Deep from the road a little path dipped, and at its foot a frail bridge crossed the pond, for here the two shores were quite close. Either shore projected into a point, and about fifty feet of bridge had been built with logs, resting halfway on a rude pillar of stones in the water. This bridge continued the path up the far slope and over the crest beyond. It was a shortcut to the country and the southern suburb of Mona. Within the grounds of the mansion, extending northward to the highway, and the scene of the murder, and southward into uninhabited country, was a forest of oak and of elm, interspersed with an occasional fir. One could easily wander between the trunks of these trees, but having entered a few rods, 
all traces would be lost to the outside world. It afforded an excellent shelter for anyone desiring to escape detection. We noticed all these things as we drove to the mansion next morning. We found the caretakers awaiting us, and more than glad to again see Mr. Clark, as they knew Oakes. The event of the day before had crowded fast upon us, and had left us well known in the town. The name of Clark was on every tongue. Oakes remarked that morning, before we started for the mansion, that he hoped the people would not identify him. If they do, we cannot help it. However, he said, we cannot control events like these. Then he suddenly asked me, How about that negro? He was handsome, you say? Yes, rather black, with remarkably clear-cut features. Indeed. Then he may be traced through his good looks. Do you think he is the murderer? That's difficult, said Oakes, but I should think not. Had the deed been done by a negro boy, the victim would have remembered it. They are uncommon here. He would have said, a negro, good-looking, or something of that sort. His color would have impressed the dying man. Well, why was the negro so scared? Probably recognized the description as that of someone he knew. Perhaps not, said Moore. He may have just been emotional. The race is very superstitious. If I make no mistake, continued Oakes, Mona is going to see queer things. The people's minds are at a great tension. In any event, the affair is not ours. That is, not as we see it now. Our welcome from the servants seemed genuine in its sincerity, and Cook and his wife ushered us up to our rooms. The hall from the front door was a long one, and the stairs leading to the upper floor was broad and well carpeted. Our rooms, two in number, were over the parlor and the dining room, the latter the scene of the occurrences so frequently described. Oakes was given the back room, looking on the river and over the balcony. Moore and I occupied the front room over the parlor. On the other side of the hall were two large rooms, guest chambers, as we were told. They formed the roof of the dance or reception hall below, to the right of the door as we entered, and always kept locked, as Annie told us. In fact, the dance hall and the two large chambers overhead formed the north side of the house and had not been used for many years. According to tradition, the hall had been a gay center in the years gone by, when the mansion was the leading house in the village. It had now lost its prestige to new and magnificent residences of the rich New York men of affairs, who had recently come into the town to make it their home, and to transform all its social conditions, and to add life and new energy to the country around. During the forenoon we examined the downstairs rooms pretty thoroughly. We did it in an unostentatious manner. The room had several windows, and the front one facing the road in the distance had a large fireplace. Oakes examined this carefully, and shook his head in a negative manner. The back room facing the river on the west, the lawn, and the estate on the south was the dining room. Its four large windows, two on each side, extended down in the old style to within a foot of the encircling porch. Again, there was a large fireplace, and I looked over it closely, but it was solidly built and seemed to have been undisturbed for years. The entire room was paneled in oak, and this appeared to be new. It was right here that I had my experience, said the detective, as he stood by the windows to the west. I was near the center of the room, leaning upon the table, and Moore was farther along on the other side of the fireplace, near the eastern wall. We were quite interested in the place, and I am sure I felt anything but secure." Dr. Moore laughed in his careless way. "'Look out, old fellow,' said he. "'It will catch you again.' Oakes and I stepped out on the balcony. 
through the low-silled window and looked across the river. I heard a rustle, I thought a half-muffled tread, a swish, a peculiar noise, and Oakes jumped to the center of the balcony. "'Look out! That's the noise!' cried the detective. We both glanced towards Moore and saw a terrible sight. The strong man was unsteady on his feet. His knees were bent and his head thrown forward. Great drops of perspiration were rolling off his pale face. He looked like a man about to fall. "'Help, for God's sake! Help!' he cried and clutched at his neck. That instant the physician came across the room, hurled by terrific force. I caught him as he fell and saved him from injury against the table. He was overcome completely. He held his neck in a pained position and groaned. Oakes, weapon in hand, advanced to the hall. We heard a distant muffled noise, preceded by a slam. At that instant our attention was called to the balcony. A figure jumped on the porch from the west side and dashed past the windows, leaving the balcony near its southern end and disappearing in the trees beyond. "'A man,' said Oakes, and he was hiding behind the porch. "'Yes, but he did not do it. How could he have run there so quickly?' I answered. "'Better take more upstairs.' saying which oak jumped from the room and instead of going out the front door he sprang to the west end of the hall near the dining-room and opened a door i had not noticed where are you going said i into the cellar don't follow unless i shoot he was gone i partly carried partly helped dr moore up to his room and placed him on the bed he was pale and i realized he was shocked i found my flask and gave him a good drink and then saw that the back of his neck was bleeding I bathed it and tied it up in a clean towel. As I worked, he held his revolver in his hand and watched at the door, talking quickly and earnestly. He told me about how he had wondered if Oakes were insane, then of the assault on himself, how he had heard the noise and had certainly been attacked by some living being, and was satisfied that his suspicions could not be correct. He had been thoroughly converted. All this took some time, and now we were wondering what had become of our friend. The minutes passed, and I decided to descend and see what the servants were doing, and raise an alarm. Just as I was setting off, we heard two pistol cracks, muffled, but the noise from cartridges such as we carried, nevertheless. I grasped my weapon and started downstairs. As I reached the top of the landing, I heard the cellar door close with a bang on the floor below, and heard a slow tread ascending the stairs. I retreated so as to aid my wounded companion. The tread advanced along the hall. It was that of a man limping the next instant we recognized oak's voice where are you anyway he spoke and the next instant he appeared on our threshold revolver in hand and his face pale and drawn and his figure less erect less self-reliant than usual he was bloody from a wound on his head and his clothes were torn in shreds he steadied himself with his left hand against the door-frame great goodness oaks what is wrong said dr moore rising to help his friend what the devil i exclaimed where have you been in the cellar said oakes what have you been doing said moore in a most excitable way back came the answer in a feeble tone really i don't know having a little practice i guess catch him stone said moore i jumped forward and the stalwart figure dropped vertically collapsing at the knees then pitched headlong into the room i saved the face before it struck the floor end of chapter eight